0: Last week, Piet talked about course correction. And he talked about the major 180 degree course correction when we first turn our life over to Jesus. And he also talked about the course corrections when God wants us to move on from where we are and to refocus somewhere else. But today, I want to talk about the smaller course corrections that we make. Um, you see the tiny difference uh, between those two arrows. You can hardly see the gap. They're so close together. Now, that's true over that short distance, but what happens when the distance travelled is greater? So you begin to see that gap. It's still not that big, but what happens if this is the route taken by a pilot travelling from Spain? You see, it's the difference between getting to Latvia or getting to Belarus. Now, in global terms, that's not a huge distance, but if you're expected in Riga and you land in Minsk, that's a bit of a problem. So, what I'm um, wanting to talk about today is the little day-to-day course corrections that we need to make to be sure we get to the right destination in the best way. And I've called, uh, given the title to my talk today as Instructions for a Godly Life. Let's read in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I know we have different cultures represented here. I'm going to speak from the perspective of my own individualistic Western culture, which expects me to stand up for myself, to stand up for my rights, and if necessary, to fight for them, to think about what could possibly go wrong and make sure I'm prepared for it. If I want it done properly, do it myself. Rely on myself because others will always let me down. To keep up with the news and current affairs, to focus on all the awful things that are happening in the world, and to identify them so I can protect us. Uh, That's a very negative perspective of the Western culture, but that's sometimes what it feels like. And Paul knows that these things don't make for a godly life. He shows us a better way, as we saw in the passage, he expects us to rejoice, to be gentle, not worry, to rely on God to experience peace, to focus on the good, and to follow a good example. Now, to put what I want to say in context, or what I'm going to say in context, Paul is not telling us to do these things in order to find salvation, in order to get into God's kingdom, we do it as a result of our salvation, as a result of being in God's kingdom, out of love for the God who loved us first, who loved us enough, as Paul puts it in chapter 2 of Philippians, to humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this is a response to what God has done for us, not a way to earn anything. So what are these instructions for a godly life? First of all, we rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now rejoice isn't a word that we use very much in English anymore. I can't remember the last time I heard it, outside a religious setting. And the dictionary says it means to show great joy or delight. You would expect Paul to say this from the comfort of his own home, or maybe from his own pulpit in his own church, but that wasn't where he was. He was in prison, and he knew that there was a good chance that he would leave prison to execution. Yet he could still talk about rejoicing. Earlier in the letter he said that he had rejoiced, and that he was rejoicing, but now he tells his readers who are members of the church at Philippi, but also applies to all the members of the church, so that's us, he tells them to rejoice. But he's not asking us to rejoice in our circumstances, because those change. Instead, we rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, who's the same yesterday, and today, and forever. So to rejoice is part of worship. So when we come and worship, that's part of our rejoicing if we bring who we are into that. Last month, the ladies had a fantastic, joyful evening here at Lyft. We spent about an hour worshiping God through song. But it wasn't just singing. We were using the words of the songs to give Jesus the glory, to bring him into our situations, into the circumstances that make it so hard for us to rejoice. It was so powerful to be worshipping with, together with other women, particularly when you know that some of those other women are going through really difficult times in either their own lives or the lives of their loved ones. You know, it felt like the best kind of party at the end of it, I said to, um, uh, to Jenny, this is what I want to do for my next significant birthday. I want to have a party like this. <laughs> if we get into the habit of rejoicing in our daily lives, it will be easier to rejoice when our situation becomes difficult. If we don't rejoice in the good times, we have nothing to fall back on in the difficult times. But what that means for each of us will be different. We need to find what helps us to rejoice in the Lord and do that. You might want to join a praise party or maybe create one for yourself and Jesus, just to the two of you. You know, we get so much more out of a praise party than we do out of a pity party. Now, I'm not very good at putting on a praise party, that's not who I am. I use gratitude to turn me to Jesus. So every time, you know, when I see the fantastic views out of my windows of the snow-capped mountains and the lake, I thank God for it. When I have a fantastic meal, in fact sometimes just any meal, I'm so grateful to have a meal in front of me, I thank God for it. For time with a friend, the opportunity to speak to a colleague about Jesus. Finding an important document I thought I'd lost. Answered prayer. Something as small as getting a taxi in the rain. Sometimes it's that moment at the end of the day when you sit down finally with nothing left to do. And when I thank God, I rejoice, I feel joy in God the god that i'm thanking. You know, for me, my comment about the view, i absolutely love being out in the mountains, whether i'm with friends, whether on my own, hiking, skiing, snowshoeing, just being out in the, in the mountains causes me to worship, to rejoice in god. And sometimes when things are difficult, i picture myself there in order to rejoice in God. Now, that might not be where you find your opportunity to rejoice in God. You may find it through worship music and singing, through memorizing Bible verses and going back to them. You may find it when you're doing your favorite sport. It's particularly easy when you're winning, but maybe you need to learn to rejoice also when you're not winning. Just the joy of taking part in that sport. So we rejoice in the Lord. Might be because of the circumstances we're in, it might be despite the circumstances we're in. The second point that Paul makes is to be gentle. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Today, gentleness kind of, it's not something that we aspire to quite often it means being a doormat. Someone that others can walk all over. But that isn't what Paul means. If you look at who Jesus was or who Paul was, they weren't doormats. Read Acts and uh, the Gospels. So in the Gospels, Jesus calls people whitewashed tombs. And he wasn't just calling ordinary people that, it was the people in power. That's not the sign of a doormat. He went into the temple, the seat of power in Jerusalem, and turned over the money changers' temples. That's not being a doormat. And yet he was always gentle. In uh, With Paul, when we read in his other letters, he tells people off. He's not a doormat. Um, and yet he was gentle and asks us to be so too. I love the message paraphrase of um, some of the things uh, of this passage and I'll bring it in quite a lot. Here in verse five, it says, make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. I don't know about you, but it feels like this is a bit easier to do than being gentle. And then I thought about it, and I remember how I have behaved in the past, and sometimes still do. Sometimes when I speak to other people, I detect in my tone some part of maybe competition or superiority, arrogance. I'm not intending to put it there. It comes out of who I am, unfortunately. And so while it kind of feels doable to do this, to work with and not against people, we'll only succeed with the help of the Holy Spirit because he changes who we are from the inside. And it's not, our, our actions will always reflect what's on the inside. And he changes us bit by bit as we work with him. The next part are two verses I've put together, don't be anxious. Ask God and experience peace, because this all fits together. So do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But there's so much to worry about. You know, when we, we, we watch the news, there's so much going on in the world that is so dreadful. And then if it isn't the big world out there, it's worries about our children, or our parents, or our health, or our jobs, or our right to stay here. And the list could be endless. And there are so many things that concern us, and these things do have a place in our hearts and our thoughts. It's not that we should just pretend that everything's okay. But when Paul tells us not to worry, he's, he's not coming from his own place, he's, coming, he's building on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look it up later, it's in Matthew 6, um, beginning at verse 25. And Jesus ends his talking about worrying by saying, do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Corrie ten Boom said, worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. So, that's don't worry. So how do we not worry? Paul knows we need a healthy and godly way to deal with worry. He says that our worries should lead to prayer. Again, the message puts it so clearly. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Uh, Women like to talk to each other Sometimes they'll talk to men if there's no other woman around, but they like to talk to each other. And we talk about our worries and concerns. We don't do it to find a solution. We don't, we're not necessarily complaining. It's a way of bonding with each other, of creating intimacy and sharing with each other. But as Christians, we need to be really careful that this doesn't turn into complaining or lead us to focus on our worries. Instead, particularly if we're talking with other Christian women, it should lead us to pray together to give those worries to Jesus. And you know, as we give our worries to Jesus, as we turn our, um, our worries through prayer and through, does um, it put it, petitions and praises shape our um, worries into prayers, as we do this, God gives us his peace. Peace which is beyond all understanding. Peace that can protect our hearts and minds. I'm going to go back to the message again for this verse. It says, before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I've got plenty of examples of this in my own life. Um, Where in worldly terms, I should have been worried. Um, I spent about six months off work with stress. I should have been worried. But God gave me a verse that helped me focus on him. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And in fact, after I went back to work, I was made redundant and I had no, I I didn't have another job to go to. I had no idea what was going to happen. But I knew the God who was in control. And the amazing thing is that within an hour of having been given that paper telling me that I was leaving my job, two different recruitment agencies had called me about the same job, which God got for me. But I had no idea that that was going to come. But God gave me um, uh, a sense of peace and well-being. And there are other cases as well where God has given me a sense of peace. He hasn't given me a word telling me how or if the situation is going to be resolved. But inside there's a sense that all will be well because God is in charge. And that's the peace that he promises. So now that we've given our worries to Jesus and received his peace, at least for the moment, because this is an ongoing process. This isn't something we do once. It's something we do throughout our lives. So how do we keep hold of that peace? You know, listening to watching the news is so hard and it it feels particularly hard at the moment but do you know that's true most of the time when we watch the news because they tell us all the bad stuff that's happening and you know social media doesn't help but because it encourages us to compare ourselves to others or compares our, uh, compare others unfavorably to an arbitrary standard paul's answer for us is to focus on the good. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What would happen if instead of of focusing on everything that's going wrong in the world or in our lives, we focused on all the things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent and praiseworthy. So for example, when I watch the news, I can apply these rules and look for these things in the news. You know, as, I, as I thought about this, I wondered What do I know to be incontrovertibly true? Absolutely true. Nothing can change it. The truth that I build on is that Jesus loves me just as I am. He's not going to leave me as I am, but he loves me as I am. Okay, so does he love me because I'm lovable? No. He loves me because of who he is, not because of who I am. Okay, so if that's true for me, and it's true for you too, then it's also true for every other person in the world. It isn't a case of have we acknowledged Christ yet or not. He loves us whether we acknowledge him or not. So when I look at someone on the news, maybe doing something dreadful, or have done something dreadful, or on social media, whatever they have done or are doing, I can choose to look at them as another person who Jesus loves. I can also look in the news for people who are doing noble or praiseworthy things and praise God for them. I can look for things that are right, lovely, admirable and excellent to inspire me, even within the news. You'll notice here that I say, can. I can do these things. Uh, I don't necessarily do them very often. I need to do them more. But this is something that each of us can ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. So that as we look at others, wherever we meet them, we meet them as someone else whom Jesus loves. We look for what is right. We look for what is pure. We look for what is noble. As another example, what, how, you know, I've talked about the news and the big world out there. How about when I bring it into my life, what's going on day by day? I've recently been challenged by a brilliant book um, by an American pastor and clinical psychologist, John Ortberg. And the book is called I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me. I thoroughly recommend it. Um, In a chapter that he writes on how intimacy breaks down and how to fix it, he describes verse eight here as a gratitude audit. And he talks about how we can use it in specific relationships. So if you have a relationship that is difficult in your life, perhaps with a colleague, or your boss, or perhaps with your spouse or your child. What would happen if instead of thinking of all the difficult things in that relationship, instead of thinking of all the things that are wrong with that person, you choose to look at all the aspects of that person that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. It might be that when you first start, the list is quite short. But as you focus on those things, the list will get longer. How could that change the way that you think about that person and the way that that relationship works? Maybe try it with one relationship and see what happens. If we put all of these things into practice, if we rejoice, if we are gentle, if we take all our worries um, to God in prayer, if we focus on what is good and true and noble and praiseworthy, if all of these we do, even imperfectly, our lives will be transformed. We'll live the gospel. People around us will want to know why and how we're different then we will be able to introduce introduce them to Jesus. But we can't do any of this on our own. This isn't about us striving to do this. It's about us working with the Holy Spirit to change us to be able to do these things. Paul ends this part of the letter by saying effectively, don't just listen to what I say, I mean listen, but also see what i do and follow my example i live out all of this i'm not going to say that i'm please don't follow my example i'm trying as much as anyone else is to live out a godly life but when you see someone getting something right follow their example in that area don't there, there will be no one person in this world who gets everything right. So don't put any one person on a pedestal and expect to follow their example in everything. That's a form of idolatry. But we can learn from all sorts of people who model Christ-like behavior. I'm coming towards the end of what I wanted to say. So if the band would like to, to come up. Um, so what we've talked about or I've talked about and you've listened to me thank you um, about today is that whole um, that whole thing of working out our salvation working out how to live a godly life Um, but we can only do this with Jesus and the Holy Spirit it doesn't work if you don't have Jesus So if Jesus is not yet a part of your life, but you want this kind of life, we'd love to pray with you. As I said before, Jesus loves every single person. He wants to see every life transformed. And so if you want to come to speak to Ken, or to me, or speak to the person that you came to church with, we love to see lives transformed by Jesus. I'll end now with Paul's final statement in verse nine. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.